0: G'day and welcome to the Fly Fisher Podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Hello and thanks for tuning in to episode two of the Flyfishers podcast. Today we're chatting with the founder of Complete Angler and the fly fisher, Jim Allen. Jim needs no introduction. There are very few in fishing that can say they've been there and done that like Jim can. He's fished the world and he's been a big part of the fly fishing landscape in Australia for as long as anyone can remember. As far as we know, he's the only person to be awarded an Order of Australia medal for his contribution to recreational fishing. His generosity of spirit, club presentations, media appearances and volunteer work within fishing is nothing short of legendary. On the water, Jim has a reputation of being one of the best in a range of fishing disciplines. Early days it was wading and more recently boat fishing. People still talk about days gone by where Jim would wade Polaroid Botsford Lagoon in Tasmania and bag out in a couple of hours. And this was when the bag limit was 12 fish per day. Fisheries one year released 50 tag trout into Botsford and Jim caught 28 of them. Make no mistake, the fish of Botsford were as educated and hard to catch back then as they are now. I bought the business from Jim in 2011 after starting work here as an 18-year-old in 2004. He's been an incredible mentor to me and a mate for a long time. We still see a lot of Jim. For this visit, we've sat him down, given him a cold beer and shoved a microphone in his face so he can share his life in fishing with you all. Jim, Welcome, Andrew. That's
1: outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> have I have I punched your tyres up enough? <laughs> Firstly, I'm not the only bloke that's had an order of a, a medal to the Order of Australia. Uh, Pat Washington. At Verfish, did there's a couple of but he's not here, we're not interviewing him. So, no, but I'm not not the only bloke in Australia. But (laughs) but it was nice of you to think that still you're (laughs) one of two, and I think you know it's it's commendable. Yeah, yeah.
0: so good on you, but um, yeah, Jim, I I do want to just take it back a bit for a start. Let's just talk a little bit about your childhood. Um, so, uh, siblings, brother, sister.
1: Uh, I've, I've still got a sister, She's I'm her little brother, she's <laughs> 85 and of course I'm in my late 70s, I'll own up 78 and <laughs> and I had a brother who was unfortunately killed in a car crash when he was 18 and I was 20, he was my younger brother uh, and often my sister and I think back about how life would have been different mm. uh, had, had he lived but anyway that's one of those things that happened. Uh, and, of course, back in the 1960s, over a 1,000 people were killed in Victoria on roads and when you think about that, between 1960 and 2020, there'd be 100 times more cars on the road today. Mm. But the roads are, A, vastly improved mm. um, and, secondly... 05 um, legislation, seatbelt legislation has made us all drive a little bit more carefully So
0: it was a bit of a thing that was happening regularly back in those days. Well I think
1: back reason. when I was a teenage boy just learning to drink Well, You would and have been a responsible teenager though for sure. <laughs> not sure about that. But, but, <laughs> but are you
0: like a responsible no. 78 year old? We're not sure about that either. No so. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway
1: the, the bottom line of it is times have changed and uh, we live in a a much more uh, conscious society about safety and things. Definitely. You know, occupational health and safety was never a thought and t- to and us when we were and nineteen. And tell
0: me, Jim, losing a brother at such a young age was that? Uh, do, you, do you think that shaped the kind of person that you are today in any way, or did, you know, how did it a- affect N- you? Like, without getting too raw and emotional about it, was it something that? I don't think so.
1: No, I, I think my life wasn't changed much by that. Um, It certainly didn't make me a better driver, and it should have. Um, But, uh, no, he wasn't a fisherman, and I was. And I think fishermen are born, not made. I have a very strong view that it's a bit of a throwback to times past. In fact, I'll even say it's Neanderthal. (laughs) Um, Fishermen are born, not made. And in a, a research that I read well, we've no. got four cavemen sitting around a table right here having a great <laughs> old time. <laughs> Some very high tech we'll yeah. The International Game Fish Association surveyed 3,000 anglers over the age of 65 and the question that amazed me was that 96% of them were fishing before the age of eight. Now, that's before they can make decisions to go fishing. They had to cadge an uncle or a father or a mother to take them fishing, and uh, and I, I'm convinced now...
0: I don't know about that. I think fly fishing's for everyone. So if you're just sitting on the fence a little bit, I think, you know, you're definitely destined to be a fly fisher if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: um, but just moving on, Jim, so, uh, you know, uh, school life, you went away to, to boarding school, is that right?
1: Yep, I was a boarder. Uh, aged? Aged eight. Wow. And uh, I don't think boarding's the same today. I don't think there's many parents that send their youngsters off to board um, and uh, my mother and father split So it was a split family And I think it, uh, it was convenient to send me off to boarding school And my sure. sister and brother and as well And you would have been
0: quite a handful too So I can imagine why they'd want you out on the nest um, <laughs> I yeah. actually loved boarding school
1: It was, it was, it was good for me And, uh, and I think And did you do well at school? No, I was hopeless Yeah, uh, I was scholastically inept I was never a sports jock But I had a little coterie of mates and, you know, I think I could sell silkworms better than anyone else and (laughs) I could, uh, you know, when I look back I had the best collection of marbles but I don't think I was... I don't think you'd call me a, a scholastic success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but destined to greatness uh, later on, no doubt.
0: Um, so university, after school, no, nothing like that? No, none of that.
1: No, I left Was school, never an interest? Or? No, I left school and it was – Bob Menzies was the Prime Minister at the time and uh, I uh, – I, uh, Sort of, it was a credit squeeze. but It was the first credit squeeze after the war. And yep. I had actually a struggle leaving school and finding a job and I ended up uh, working for Floor Coverings yep. Proprietary Limited, which was run by a fellow called Don Smith. And he was a true mentor to me and I learned a lot about business. Then I went on to a department store called Paul and Welsh and uh, if you've ever seen that uh, television show, Are You Being Served? Um, we had Mrs. Slogan. Jim, that's a long
0: time ago. No one's seen that show. <laughs> 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 Unless it's on Netflix, we don't want to know about
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me do um, But it's let's
0: just go back a little bit further. So um, before you started working, though, um, and uh, you've mentioned this just in passing w- once before, but... Um, the, did you have an overseas trip or something that you did in between school and starting to work or did yeah. that come later or what? No, was, I... Um, the
1: round-the-world uh, trip? No, yeah, no, I, I left school and uh, and worked for both Ball and Welsh and floor coverings and then uh, took a year off to go to a cousin's wedding in London and made that sort of a trip of the lifetime. I went to Argentina, spent four weeks there. Wow. Um, then went on and fished in Norway and uh, that salmon that sits in your shop is 28 and 5 That's exactly the same size salmon that I caught. Not on a fly rod. Uh, <laughs> it was on a Abbey 5000. We'll have to pull it off the wall now. <laughs> Anyone that
0: wants a, a timber salmon,
1: <laughs> check eBay. Now, hang on. Let me tell you, they're worth a fortune. Yeah, yeah. So don't you get rid of that in a hurry. Uh, anyway, um, I then... Uh, and then went to Kashmir. Yep. And uh, I was a bit of a shooter at the time too. I uh, I enjoyed... Yeah, talk to us a bit
0: about that, you know, you, uh, had, uh, I guess a passion for, for hunting b- back in those days. And were you, were you the big game hunter or what were you? I had the aim
1: to be a big game hunter. Yeah. And then uh, purchased a licence uh, to shoot a Himalayan black bear and a snow leopard. Now, the snow leopard is on the seriously most endangered lists today. And I presume even back then it was quite endangered. No, I don't think so. Well, you certainly could buy a licence to shoot one. Mm. Anyway, we tied a goat to a tree, stayed up all night and up past two in the morning. The snow leopard came down, which was no bigger in size than a large Alsatian or German Shepherd dog. And by then I had discovered that I wasn't a big game hunter. Mm. I shot a foot above its head. I was in total disgrace. I look back now, 60 years later, and thought that was the best thing I ever did. Yeah, and funny. I've shot a thousand birds. I've killed a thousand fish plus with no remorse. However, I've never shot a big game animal. And only in 2018, I went to Kenya and photographed a hundred different animals and a hundred different birds and thoroughly enjoyed doing it. And I'm glad I didn't turn out to be a big game hunter. Mm. But I have been a fly fisherman all my life. To me it's the ultimate form of catching fish and I've enjoyed my life immensely around a fly rod.
0: Yeah, so when did you pick up a fly rod? Was this shortly after returning from that, that trip or...?
1: Uh, yes, well, actually just before. Yep. I, I met a fella called Bob Rolls who sadly died last year and uh, we became lifelong friends and I, I learnt to fly fish with him. I actually picked him up as a hitchhiker outside the Maroondah Dam near Healesville and he and a mate were going up to the Stevensons River near Buxton with fly rods and I was a bubble float fisherman in those days and I was there with a mate too and we were heading off up to fish the pondage at Eildon and uh, anyway, within a few weeks I went to Vic and bought a Victoria fly rod from Turvals where Bob Rolls worked and uh, within a couple of weeks I had a full fly fishing outfit and my fly fishing really started in the west branch of the Kiwa River uh, and Bob and I used to go up there for the weekend and fish the Kiwa, and they were little fish, but I learned to fly fish, fly cast, and then life went on from there.
0: So did you have any formal casting instruction? Was it Bob that taught you how to cast, or did you get involved with any clubs, or how did, how did that come Bob about? I think Bob gave
1: me my first casting lessons, but I then joined uh, the Victorian Fly Fishers Association and other Fly fishing clubs and learned to cast properly, um, but no, Bob was the first starter, and and of course, fishing a small creek like the West Branch of the Kiwa, your flies either it on the water or it's in a tree, and you learn to cast b- because you're forced into it because you you make so many mistakes. Sure. So I ended up being okay. I'd never classify myself as a very good fly caster by comparison to some of the great casters I've seen but I get the fly out there
0: still. In my experience fishing with Jim, he's, he's very good at getting the fly to where it needs to be, but it's not pretty
1: to watch. <laughs> oh, that. that's, been, that's been said before <laughs> and I can pop that. Uh, but I've seen some very, very handsome casters, Bluey Powell back in the old days, uh, Bob Rolls, um, Andrew Summers who runs one of your distribution companies in the tackle trade, are beautiful casters. Uh, they, they just are. look magic. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, I've employed two young teenagers who are now in their 50s, both Rodney Foy and Mark Penny, who both won Australian fly casting championships in their day mm. and uh, they were beautiful casters too. But Jim Allen could get the fly out there, as you say. Uh, yeah, it's, and he still it's, can. It, it's <laughs> still a bit agricultural, <laughs> he, I suspect. He has a habit of
0: putting his fly... Directly in front of yours when there's a fish rising. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: no, 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 I have to say most of my fly fish are done out of a boat today and there's no rules. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so getting back to Bob Rolls, you know, the two of you, uh, you know, obviously started com- the complete angler or...? Yes, we in- started
1: as Rolls and Allen, Rolls and Alan. And Allen. Uh, yeah. that survived for about three months and then um, uh, Bob, Bob and I... Didn't have the world's best partnership. Three months, that's
0: the, uh, that's the shortest marriage I've ever heard of.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it didn't last long and then Bob went away and worked for one of the mining companies in Western Australia to earn some dough to come back and put into the business, uh, which actually didn't happen in the end. Um, but uh, And then we sat in a pub uh, in Melbourne one night and said, what are we going to do? Because Rolls and Allen can't stay as a name and uh, the choices came down to the tackle box the creel and then a mate of mine who's now dead called tom egwood said you know the right name for it you ought to call it the complete angler and i just said done deal and from that moment on in 1968 it was the complete angler
0: i'm digging up a, a story that you must have told me at, at one point but didn't you uh get a get back from a fishing trip once and and there was bob you know Draped over the ground and empty beer bottles all through the shop, and so. Uh no, I probably should not <laughs> tell that story. It's <laughs> not fair. Uh, that's um, okay. well, and, and I'm and making that one up. So, uh, you've
1: well, got a partial truth attached to that, but um, yeah. Anyway, look, it, it nobody's be, perfect. No, and, that's uh, right. Yeah. and and he was a he was probably the best fly fisherman I ever fished with ever met he, he and the stepping too.
0: stone into the fishing trade too so it's hard to look back with yeah of course and so I cause. only look
1: look back with the best colored glasses well, not course. bad ones yeah, yeah. Um,
0: so you know what was the, the I guess the point of difference in the complete angle of those days like you know I, I, uh, Frank Sawyer flies and it was obviously a bit of a specialized business and you you were kind of getting and sourcing products that were unique and Appealing to the consumer, or what was the we, what was the goal? We
1: called it the Complete Angler, with the aim to make it a specialist fishing tackle shop, and that was specialist brim fishing, specialist every sort of fishing. Uh, we wanted to have the best tackle. We wanted to import. Now Bob and I were both fly fishermen, so there was a weighting towards fly fishing. Bob was pedantic; he wasn't good at business, but he wrote to Mrs. Sawyer, who was Frank Sawyer, the famous nymph fisherman's widower, widow. He wrote to Dick Wigram, and we were, we were the only people in Melbourne to sell genuine Sawyer nymphs and genuine Dick Wigram black spinners and Dick Wigram-bound nymphs. And so right from the start, we were very specialised. I remember sitting in Bob Rolls' stepmother's living room tying Ritz nymphs, and a Ritz leaders, sorry, and, um, and Ritz Leader was a perfect parabolic leader. If you've read an old book in fly fishing called The Fly Fisher's Life, mm. Ritz was certainly the, the most advanced formula for leaders in those times. And uh, we used to sell our Ritz Leaders with great pride way back in the late 1960s.
0: Were these products that had appeal back in those days and you had people asking for them? Or it was just your own intimate knowledge of the... the the gear and your own fishing that uh, led to, I guess, developing and expanding on these product ranges? I think the
1: answer to that is both. Um, David Scholes wrote A Fly Fisher in Tasmania in 1961. I reckon A Fly Fly Fisher's Life by Charles Ritz had a huge impact on serious fly fishermen at the time, but you've got to remember fly fishing was in its infancy by comparison today... Um, And uh, when I look back, I think Bob and I knew nearly every fly fisherman in Victoria. You know, you go up the Goulburn. I remember employing one young bloke, and he was only a 16-, 17-year-old, and he'd only worked for us for about four weeks, and he called in sick. So the next morning he comes in with a certificate from a doctor. But one of my mates had handed over a pound and a half fish for him on the Goulburn (laughs) River, and I said, no... He said, oh, I ran into your new young bloke up the Goulburn last Wednesday. Don't get any said, <laughs>
0: ideas, Peter, in force. Oh,
1: never, Andrew, never. I, I did say to this young bloke, oh, you know, like, how sick were you? And, I, and he woke up that I knew more than I should have. And I said, you can't get away with anything from me. I know most of the fly fishermen on the Goulburn River, which I did in those days. Now... I know no one, you know, like it's all changed. Dramatically. Well, we know them
0: all, and it's still a very small,
1: you know, posse of people, so <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> Not no, a whole I'll, lot's changed, but I'll yeah. have to disagree with you. There are thousands of fly fishes.
0: So, getting back to business just briefly, um, obviously it expanded pretty rapidly for you to a number of stores. Um, how did that
1: all come
0: about? You know,
1: well, I, I, I think in the time apart from Turvals in Victoria, uh, and and pastime sports store down in Glen Huntley run by Max Carter and his father Bill, there were no specialist stores. The old days were the Melbourne Sports Depot with a fishing department, Meyer with a fishing department. So you are very specialised and business started booming almost right away. Absolutely. And, it went, and, of course, with it came a sport fishing boom and a travel boom. People mm. could start to move around. You know, the, the motor car came into the hands of us teenagers. So as I've
0: heard you say before, you were in the halcyon years of fishing tackle, is that right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, mm.
1: well, Certainly it, there was a boom that developed and, and that was not just in... It was in a lot of areas like rod building. Like no one builds a rod today by comparison to the rod building boom. You know, we bought, we bought our books on um, sort of tying... Rods up. There was Dale Clemens wrote a book, The Custom Rod Thread Art. And you'd. Crazy. You'd bound your rods with chevrons and diamonds, and yes. there was a whole boom in that. And then. and then It'd be a
0: great read, I'm sure.
1: Well, look, today it's all just history. <laughs> a real <history>. page turner. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all just history today, but you know, we sold rod blanks by the thousands. Mm. Um, you don't sell a Rob Blank at all today. I, d- I wouldn't know where to buy one. No, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you well, know,
0: like the trade continues to change, though. That I think over the years, and it continues
1: to oh, certainly I, even in the last ten years. I walk into your shop today, and I'm gobsmacked mm. with the range of fly tying materials that were not available in our day. You mm. know, we 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 sort of some of our fly tying was roadkills, mm. and you know, like a parrot, or mm. and you pick up the parrot and take off its feathers. and yeah. Oh, the, the best one was a, an eastern moorhen for tying a Thai Happy Tickler or a Craig Nighttime. You blokes wouldn't know what <laughs> they, were. No, they were. Why? New, they were New course. Zealand wet flyers, but they imitated a mud-eye and were hugely successful in the early days at Lake been fishing it, you know, after dark. Mm. They don't
0: eat that fly anymore.
1: They only eat Cupid's mud-eyes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> now, don't laugh about cubits, mate. They they became the real thing mm. later on. Yeah, mm. I remember them. They were in my day. Yeah. yeah. So you obviously got to
0: work. It was a busy time for you uh, back then. You know, at what sort of age did things start to free up and you were able to spend a bit more time fishing and distance yourself from the business in a way that you could have more
1: fun? Some of my staff... I'm asking for a mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, some of my staff would claim that I didn't work after the age of 40. And there's an element of truth because it was a successful business and, and of course, I started to fish um, at Bermagui for yellowfin tuna and up in Cairns for giant black marlin because I had a game fishing life as well. Um, And, in fact, I was heavily involved in game fishing for a long time. I was a representative for Victoria for the International Game Fish Association. I was president of the Game Fishing Association of Victoria. And what is so it that excites you about game fishing so much? Or was it the, just the sheer physical size of those those fish that always you always sight fishing. We saw our gotcha. yellowfin tuna before we caught them. Yep. We always sat on Flybridge and Marlin Cape play cat and mouse, I've always enjoyed So when you see those bellfish lit up or big tuna,
0: it's, it's, it is electric, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. And it started with catching leather jackets at Sorrento Pier as a 12-year-old boy. You know, like those leather jackets would dart out from the pier at Portsea or Sorrento and that was the first start of sight fishing. I didn't know it at the time. It was just my fishing was always for leather jackets, you know, and then it expanded and, of course, I think I could probably claim to be one of the very early fly fishers that went to Christmas Island for bonefish, and I'd read Joe Brooks's book, uh, "A World of a salt, a Saltwater Fly Fishing World," or something, I can't remember the title, and um, it was the first book really on saltwater fly fishing. And I had to go to Christmas, So I, I, I looked in one of my passports just recently, and my my uh, visa to go to Christmas Island has SYD0001. Well, there wasn't a consul in Victoria. There was only one in Australia, and that was in Sydney, mm. and that was in 1979. And I've had a few people tell me, that, oh, no, I was there before, I said, show me the passport. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a bit of passport arrogance on lie. my part. Yeah. yeah. So yeah.
0: a lot of overseas travel, you know, where else did you get to? I guess after the well, age of forty, and it well, I know. a, lot of travel right
1: over as, here. a right as a young teenager. I went to Argentina and travelled all through mm. Argentina. In fact, but with a fly rod. So we're talking, you know, yeah, absolutely. Business is cranking now. Absolutely, no, no. But business hadn't even started. I this is this is after I left uh, uh, floor coverings, and, and I but spent. Now I'm sp-
0: talking about after you're in the trade, you, you know, you've got the business to a point where it's. Oh well, then then, and then travel came, uh, yeah. and of
1: course. I bought a shack in Tasmania, and I suppose most summers from that day on um, was in Tasmania. I, a few trips to New Zealand, of course. I made a lot of friends in New Zealand. I I, I did a the great Lindsay Lines. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and fished uh, down in the South Island uh, with other guides. And uh, look, I I. I didn't fall in love with New Zealand as I did with Tasmania, hmm. but I've enjoyed some of the fishing there. Why is that? Do you think? What is it that that really lured you to Tassie? Is it? I think the polaroiding, polaroiding in yeah. still water. The, the polaroiding the, and still water, uh, and yeah. uh, you've heard me wax lyrical about John Philbrick being the father of modern mm. day polaroiding. I think we were the generation that discovered polaroiding in the waves uh, before any. Tasmanians really, and yeah. and uh, and that opened up a whole new fishery in the Western Lakes, and uh, and it was so exciting, and the fish were big, and mm. you know, and so whilst I enjoyed my river fishing in New Zealand, it wasn't quite the same side fishing as the Stillwater fishing in in the Highland Lakes of Tasmania, and uh, and so I fell in love with Tasmania. In fact, I've only just got back. A week ago from another two months there. I go there every year since I bought a shack there in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned John Philbrick. You know, obviously he might have been, uh, I guess, not an inspiration, but the, you know there were some.
1: No, no, he was an inspiration. Yeah. He was the one who discovered polaroiding in the waves at Penstock, and he said to me, Jim, you've got to come down and have a look at this. It's amazing. Yeah. And I went down and joined him and. And we, I got down there at half past nine in the morning. And in those days, I jumped out of bed pretty early. And he said, "No, no, no. You have a cup of coffee. The light's not high enough until ten o'clock." And so we went out at ten thirty. I can't remember how many fish, but I was gobsmacked to see these fish in the waves. Yeah. He said it's a perfect morning. Yeah. He said it's a stiff northerly, and he said we'll just we we will fish with the wind behind us, and we'll have the light behind us. And that was the start of my polaroiding life, wow. and as you know, and it know, was a,
0: a light bulb moment for you. Absolutely, it?
1: nothing yeah. less. And and I believe a light bulb moment for nearly everybody who took it up from that moment on. Yeah. I don't. F-
0: and you told everyone. <laughs>
1: no, I didn't, but I did tell a few. <laughs> <laughs> the snowball effect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've never been a secretive fly fisher. I'm not one of these guys that sort of says, "Oh, don't tell anyone," you know. And there's been a few little discoveries over the over the years where I've always shared it with my friends. I haven't written about it, uh, and I and I certainly haven't promoted it. But I yeah, let me tell you, there quite a few. There was a coterie of us that yeah. enjoyed that fly fishing through the 19, early 1980s. Philbrick obviously being 19- one,
0: but were there any other names, you know, and people that were influential and, I guess, great companions back in those days
1: fishing in Tassie? Philbrick was definitely number one. JB? No doubt. Well, we had a coterie of great fly mm. fishing mates. I, I wouldn't describe them as the best fly fishermen in the world, but... a A lot of them have joined me every year fishing in Tasmania and had some wonderful, wonderful fishing. In latter years, uh, what we call shark fishing on the Great Lake uh, and that was a discovery by uh, a fellow called Peter Wilson who built what is now the Central Highlands Lodge or the Maena Hotel but in those days it was the Great Lake Hotel um, and Peter Wilson and Ross Carey built it but Peter fished and he said to me one day, you want to go to the wall at 6 o'clock at night. They're golden sharks and they're all up feeding. Mm. Well, I went and followed that and found them. And then I thought, well, if they're up feeding, I wonder how early they are. So I went at 2 o'clock, they were there. <laughs> and I went at 10 o'clock in the morning, they were there. And, <laughs> and shark fishing developed from that moment on. Now, the shark fishing in Tasmania isn't as good as what it once was. You know, there's I've got in my diary records of you know, 35, 40 fish a day, well...
0: Has it always been a terrestrial slash gum beetle uh, thing that's brought them up, do you think, even better? No, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And and nowadays we know so much more about it. Yeah. You know, when the midges hatch at daybreak, they form into columns which, you know, you call wind lanes, but we call phone lanes, and, um, and those fish stay up all day, starting yes. on the midges at daybreak and then... At half past ten in the morning a few beetles start falling onto the water in a warm northerly and, and yeah. the fishing goes on all day. You yeah. know, like I can remember ringing a mate of mine and he said, how are you going? What's the Mokopan scoreboard? Now the Mokopan scoreboard came from cricketing days when the cricket scoreboard was subsidised or... Promoted by Mockapan Coffee. And we nicknamed the Mockapan scoreboard from that moment on. Yeah. And I remember saying to, 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 to Timmy Wallace, We've got 38. Oh, he said, You're going to knock my record off. Well, we didn't. We never saw another fish from four <laughs> o'clock on. But, uh, but yeah, that's how life was. But, mm. you know, we've had some wonderful time on the Great Lake. And of course, it's not just the Great Lake, there is shark fishing to be had in. Any clear water lake in winds where there's beetles, and still a lot to discover, no doubt. Oh, but, um, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you know, I, I know you've had a lot of guests that have come from overseas and stayed with you in in as well. You know, any interesting ones that spring to mind? I remember you telling me about a a, no, a, yeah, a, a gentleman from, from Japan that that was a little <laughs> uh, got a little lonely out there in the western.
1: Oh, I've had a lot of friends. Um, the export director of ABU, a fella called C.O. Erickson. I fished all around the world with him. I fished in Paraguay with him. I fished in Chile, New Guinea. Uh, but he came and stayed with me at Tasmania with his first wife and uh, he couldn't believe the fishing. But it was his wife who said to me, and where do you live when I said we're all in the shack together and the shack was tiny. And he said, and where do you live? I said, I live in the top bunk. Really? And she couldn't believe it because the Swedes live at a sort of slightly more, um, I think, better living standards in their fishing shacks (laughs) than my early days in Tasmania. But see, my early days in Tasmania, you had to step into a shower and hoist a bucket of warm water up to have a shower and and the the lavatory was a dunny out the back, which was a long drop full of flies. Uh, Today, things are a bit more civilised. but (laughs) Anyway, uh, so CRX and I remember, well, uh, you're talking about Yoshi from... Japan, who was a, uh, an editor of one of the Japanese fishing magazines, and he came out and I took him out to Flora and Odell. And in those days, we'd just been stopped from driving our Suzuki's out there and we had to walk from the bottom of Botsford. So we walked out there and we get out there and we've had about half an hour at Odell. And he goes, Jim's son, where are all the people? And I go, Yoshi, there's no no one here. Oh, very lonely, very lonely. <laughs> anyway, and a couple of hours went past and he was distraught. He was in a mess. Yeah, And yeah. he'd come from Japan. He'd never been in a remote lake in, he, yeah. in his life. Yeah. Anyway, when we walked back, back up to Botsford, when the car came into view, and I, I have to say it was a mile or two away, he broke into a trot. And I found him clinging to the car. So, <laughs> so I opened up the back of the station wagon, pulled out the air Put a beer into his hand. And he goes, Jim, son, can we go back to a hotel? Mm. Very, very low He was destroyed. He it, didn't want to sit in the back It's interesting, isn't a, it? It kind of makes
0: you think what it's going to be like in another 20 years' time, even in Australia, you know, because we are increasingly urbanised and, and used to being around people. And I, I think oh. still today we're lucky we can get solitude. If you're willing to walk that little bit further, solitude's very easy to find here. But obviously in other parts of the world and even back then in Japan it was Oh, yeah. They've never experienced it even in their lives. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, that,
0: amazing.
1: yeah no, it was an amazing time. But I, I've had a lot of guests that come out, you know, mm. Barry Unwin from England comes out still today most years. He hasn't been out for the last year because of this COVID. But uh, he he had a fly tying operation in Kenya, which was, in the end, the biggest in the world, I suspect. Still is today, 40 yeah. mil. Yeah, and they're beautiful flies. And he, he was the catalyst that made me go to mm. Kenya in 2018. And sadly, he'd retired, so I didn't join him there, but... I went and stayed with him and then we went and fished the test uh, in England which is Orvis's hallowed water and of course historically probably arguably the most famous trout water in the world to fish and think about I'm sure
0: you negotiated a, a good rate on getting on that
1: stretch of water. Uh, we fished <laughs> as Orvis's guest. We didn't <laughs> have to pay a cent. Must be
0: nice. <laughs> <laughs> However,
1: I, I, I think back. And when you read the great English books on fly fishing from Halford and Skews, the, the test is one of those waters that you have to think. In fact, I did a photograph album which I call my bucket list trip and I also fished uh, in in America and uh, on the Beaverkill River and that again is sort of hallowed water, you know. The the early writers of American Fly Fishing wrote of the beaver kill.
0: Those into photo albums, feel free to pop by and flick through Jim's bucket list uh, photo <laughs> album.
1: <laughs> Have you got one here?
0: <laughs> you gave them to everyone, mate. They're everywhere. <laughs> what, did you print a thousand of them? No. Um, but look, we, we've taken a bit of a tangent now. I just want to get back to Tassie a little bit um, because uh, you had a lot of years there and, and, and I guess business interests there as well with the, the pub and the lodge at one point, is that right?
1: Yeah, it started uh, Julian Brown built the pub, which was in those days to be called Julian's Lodge. Um, he didn't enjoy the first few weeks.
0: This is the Great Lake Hotel in, in It's the, the Great Lake
1: place. Hotel today, but yeah. it's had a few names. It started off as Julian's Lodge, then it became the Complete Angler Hotel, and I was a licensee for one lonely long year. And then, uh, lonely, uh, uh, yeah, In the highlands of Tasmania uh, through winter, uh, yeah, shocking, surely. No, not. <laughs> it was it, Tasmania just doesn't have fishermen, it also has a lot of kangaroo shooters, which they don't shoot kangaroos, they shoot wallabies, but they call it roo and they go rooing. And, uh, yeah, that's a, look, I, I, we won't dwell on that, let's stay with <laughs> fly fishing. <laughs> Wasn't one of the best years of my life no. on the other side of that. I met a whole lot of great friends that are still friends today, like John Fox, who became a track guide, and so there was some. There's a l- lot of wonderful aspects of my time in Tasmania. Commercially, in in the end, we um, we bought from Doug Bridges, uh, his sports store in Hobart, for the World Fly Fishing Championships in 1988. Um, I made a bit of an enemy with Noel Jetson's wife over that, unfortunately, Uh, but the other side of it, Bridges Brothers was the seventh oldest operational business in Australia at the time, it had traded from 1830 to 1988 when I purchased it, we only owned it for probably 12 or 15 years and turned it into a complete angler, but it stayed with its gun shop and it stayed with its sporting goods and... Then that Martin Bryan went and shot all those people down in 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 um, port port, down at um, Port Arthur. Port Arthur, yeah. Sorry, Skip and Brain. and and that ended the shooting. Well, we mm. we got rid of it soon after that. and yeah. it was just a sad time. Yeah, and a shocking time too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now that the, the fishing in Tassie, I, I know one uh, one photo hanging up in your shack. You're holding two massive. I think they're rainbows, aren't they? We're no,
1: both browns. Both browns? Yeah. yeah. You know, then, yeah. Uh, that, that was Shark Lagoon. we uh, It's the only time I've been really secretive in my <laughs> life about fishing. So there and are secrets, yeah, aren't there? Right? Yeah, I have to own up. I've always suspected. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> no, we we decided to do a walk from Double Lagoon through to Lake Kay and so we fished all the way down the sort of... Um, the western side, or, or yeah, western side of uh, Double Lagoon, caught a few fish, and then we moved over to Chipman and fished through Chippen, didn't see a fish, and then we were walking to Lake Kay, and we came across this water, and I was with Dave Fennick, and we both waded through it, and we both saw a seven pound trout. Mm. And I said, Dave, that fish I saw was seven pounds. He said, well, the one I saw was about seven pounds too, I reckon. I said, well, that must be bulldust, you know, that can't be that big. And then we walked back. We didn't get to Kay because we spent some time there, but I went back. (laughs) On your own. In those days. Without Dave, any. (laughs) Correct. And those days you could drive all over the Western Lakes. And there was an old Jeep track that left... Now, why did you go back? Isn't there more to
0: the story here? Wasn't there a challenge laid down that there's no big trout left in Tasmania or something to that effect?
1: No, Yeah, I think that, uh, that wasn't the important part. I went back down there and I went back once and saw a really nice fish, I mean a really huge fish. And then I, one particular day in 1986, in my diary I can't remember the date, I drove down the Chipman track to, to Chipman... Parked the car at Chipman so the car was out of sight. Walked across to East Rocky and had it for the whole day on my own. Came back to the car with four trout weighing 39 pounds, 15 <laughs> ounces. The biggest one was 12.3 <laughs> and the photo you're, you're thinking of was taken by the ranger at the time, a fellow called Valdell. And I picked up these two fish and he took, a photo of me with them. And that big fish was £12.3. The second one was £10.12. They're still today, 40 years later, the two biggest trout I've ever taken in Tasmania. Yeah, incredible. But um, yeah, I... Um, and
0: still plenty of trophies out there to be taken too, to those that are willing to work that little bit I, harder I, I and maybe keep the odd secret. <laughs> I think
1: you've got to find a very remote lake. Mm. And I... I'm... Letting out a bit of a secret here, in the western lakes of Tasmania, the top lagoon of a water system usually has the biggest trout in it and that's hard to find. But if any of your customers want a little secret, head up to the top lagoon of a river or creek system and you'll most likely find the largest trout Everyone's on their computer now looking for
0: topographical maps <laughs> and contour lines. <laughs> Get back to the podcast, guys. Keep listening because uh, there's more. But um, so, uh, I, you know, I've just returned from Tassie, had a great time over there. We stayed in Jim uh, in Shack and um, uh, I, every time I'm there, I can't help but pull out the insect collection. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. What Have you always had a bit of a fascination with? It
1: started with Julian Brown. He started collecting little files of what was in trout stomachs and then I took it to another level I suppose, I became a fanatic about it and um, only a few years ago I read an article about the giant Great Lake Limpet and this scientist in Hobart had made a, a statement saying that it hadn't been seen for many, many years and and that it was probably extinct. So I wrote a quite a rude little email to him saying, the giant Great Lake limbard is certainly abundant, and if you'd like to have a few samples, I'd be happy to send them down to him. So he wrote a curt little note saying, unlikely, but and he sent me up uh, a couple, a, a young couple, to see me. And, of course, I gave them samples of it. Anyway, they went away and... The upshot of it was there's two limpets in Tasmania. There's Irvine's limpet and the giant great Lake limpet. Now, I can't remember the scientific names, but I actually actually had both of them. Wow. And there is an article in the Tasmanian Naturalist about uh, Jim Allen and these scientists. And if you want to wax lyrical about the history of the Great Lake Limpet. There's about eight pages you could read with photographs. But but getting back to...
0: They're not calling like it the the Jim Allen no, Limpet, no, though, no, are No, 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 not into that. No, just, it didn't make it into the, the scientific journal for aquatic no, but, <laughs> <vertebrates>. <laughs> but
1: my collection's always been about what trout eat mm. and I've been fascinated by the various stick caddis species. Some of them are built little boxes, some are round, some are long, some are brown and I've been fascinated by the various insects and so I've just collected and I have got a quite remarkable collection. Now, It is when, incredible. Yeah. when these Tasmanian scientists took it away and they catalogued it, she came back, do you want the good news or the bad news? And she called it a voucher collection. Don't ask me why. And I said, well, give us the bad news. She said, well you've probably got half a million dollars worth of fines because you, you've been collecting <laughs> endangered species and the Tasmanian law says you're not allowed to have endangered From species. From snow leopards
0: to Great Lake yeah. limpets. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
1: the upshot of it all was she said you've been gazetted to be a collector and and I, I, and she, and I was collecting them and putting them in formalin. Well, she came up with some much more alcoholic-based... Uh, preservative liquids for me to put it in, the ethyl tetrachloride or something that's quite poisonous and said, for goodness sake, Jim, don't put it in your whiskey." I said, no, I won't. And, uh, <laughs> but I've got better, better things in this day age to, to put my collection.
0: That, that must be the bottle in the cupboard that says, you know, not for consumption. Correct. Yeah, now I saw that there. I thought, oh, this looks like a bit of jungle juice. we better give this a go. But <laughs> I'm glad we didn't. No, no. That you, would have really given us a, a bit of a You'll end up in <laughs> hospital if you
1: touch it. But the other the other story was, was she said to me, "I'll keep an eye out for for a minor jewel beetle," and uh, the minor jewel beetle hadn't was in copious quantities in the nineteen seventies and eighties, hadn't been seen for twenty or thirty years, and of course within a week I had one, which wow. was a m- miracle because I've never seen one before or since, yeah. but since then I've become a bit of a have an interest in jewel beetles. Now, Tasmania's got quite a few jewel beetles and there's actually even a little booklet published on jewel beetles. Now, this is going to bore all your listeners. But I've been fascinated by it. yeah, So I mm. have got a really interesting collection, which and, I and like pulling out and showing kids because yes. it makes them interested. And fly fish is not all about just catching fish. No. It's about all the, but the, thing the things I find, that go with it. The thing I find interesting about you
0: is you've got this fascination with the, the insects. You've never, ever picked up a fly tying bobbin and actually put thread on a hook. I mean, what?
1: Oh, yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I have. No, no, that's not fair. When okay. I was in your age and a bit younger, mm. Forbes's age here, I... <laughs> um, I I took up fly tying and I rapidly discovered you either have a talent for it or you don't. And I certainly didn't after putting apparitions of fur feather and tinsel on a hook. But let me tell you, I did discover. I was a thief, a robber, a crook because these guys would come in and buy flies, and they'd go – Little snide comments to a retailer. How come your flies are so bloody expensive? <laughs> I can buy flies from Jack Jack's bloody shop for a dollar ninety five and you're two ninety five. I go, Yes, but ours are tied on the best hooks with the best fly time materials and they're worthwhile. I said, Now look, George, what you should do is buy a set of fly tie materials, and tie your own. It's very therapeutic in the winter in front of the fire. All winter you can tie your own flies and you'll get so much more enjoyment about tying your flies and catching a fish on a fly that you've caught. So George would go and spend quite a few hundred dollars on a very good fly vice, tools, feathers, fur, and then he'd go home and he'd put do exactly what Jim Allen did. <laughs> of fur feather and tinsel on the hook. But usually George was either a solicitor or a doctor, where he carved somebody, replaced somebody's knee for four grand or eight grand or 10 grand. Well That's what he was plumbers these days. so <laughs> or, or, any trade. Correct. Or he was a solicitor who knew how to charge um, to make your will. And so consequently after he'd spent half an hour putting what he knew was not a very good fly together on a hook, the silverfish had a win in the cupboard, mm. eating all his fur feathers and etc, and of course, the tools ended up rusty, and Jim Allen was happy because he'd made a few hundred bucks profit out of the fly time materials. But the best part about it, George never complained about a (laughs) trout fly price again. He knew they were bloody cheap, and let me tell you, I know you charge a thieving hound dog price for a trout fly today. (laughs) But let me tell everyone listening today, they're a bloody bargain. They are, yeah, and they're probably not going to get any. And they are the business end of your fishing gear. You can spend a thousand bucks on a fancy rod. And a three hundred back rod or a five hundred back rod will do the job just as well. The fly line is another business end of your gear, but your fly reel, you can spend a thousand bucks on a fly 100%. reel.
0: Tip it and fly. That's or, but that's the what business really
1: the business end is as you just said, the tip it and the quality of the nylon that you buy. And do you know what I see guys balking at paying thirty bucks for a bit of nylon. Mm. But it's the business end of your gear. You buy the, that's the very best bit you should be buying.
0: Maybe rising fuel prices will put it all in perspective for, for people, maybe. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> a trout fly should still be six pence. <laughs> no,
1: no, no. It's the oh, business end of your gear. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Um, but, Jim, so uh, let's talk a bit about your, your order of Australia medal and, and um, you know, like
1: you got your fair share nah. of
0: accolades, haven't you? Nah, You're a yeah, big deal. You're definitely a, a legend in a nah, very I small no,
1: no, let's leave all that alone. Do <laughs> you know what? I've had a wonderful life yeah. and there's a fellow called Albert Facey. He wrote a book called A Fortunate Life. Well, he stole the title of my book if I ever wrote it because I've, I've, I think the two great things you've got in life is time and you've got an allocation of time in your life I've been lucky I've got to seventy eight years. I haven't looked after myself. I would be classified by you young fit fellows as obese and but I've had a good time i've I've probably drunk a bit too much, I've never smoked, but I've lived a good life, and I can't complain but the other thing is your friends and through fly fishing, I've made some wonderful friends and yes, I've put back a bit i you know i i did a I did some time in office at the Victorian Fly Fishers Association. I've been on committees, I've worked in ministerial advisory bodies and, yes, sure, I've been, as you say, given a gong, but the best bit about fly fishing is spending time with your friends and, and, and it is priceless and I value it more than I do. But like a lot of things in life, what you put into something, you get out in double and, uh, yeah, I've put a lot of time in fly fishing. I enjoy writing a few things for your little magazine and I like the, re- I like the response, but I seem to be writing about dead people more than I am <laughs> fishing today. Now, but that's being a feather duster, isn't it?
0: Yeah, but it's great to get some perspective on those those guys that have come and gone that have obviously, uh, you know, been a big deal. Oh, and, and some and have made major fishermen. contributions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, when you think
1: yeah. of Sir Lawrence Wackett mm. who lived in World War Two and developed the we Wirraway. away. Um, in fact I, I wrote in your mag, your little magazine about there is a, a combination of between aviation and fly fishing. Mm. And when you think of uh, Sir Lawrence Wackett, David Scholes and um Sardson Fish, they're all fly fishermen and they're all involved in the early days of aviation mm. and um you know, I remember a, a cricket captain in Australia called Keith Miller and he was asked about the pressure of being captain of Australia's cricket test team and his reply was, there's not pressure. Pressure is a mess you smit up your arse at, at 400 miles an hour that's pressure. <laughs> it <was> real pressure. <laughs> and he was an old Spitfire pilot. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I'll, I'll, yeah, but I'll you get off the subject. Yeah,
0: yeah, but no, I think it's worth mentioning that you have done a, a lot for for Habitat, uh, you know, uh, the formation of the Australian Trout Foundation, um, uh, uh, developing an awareness for the, the importance of wild trout in Australia. I, I, I think it, 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 it has to be mentioned, you know. This is obviously something that... Um, You've always found important, and I guess it probably rings more true today than ever, um, with the challenges that we're we're facing with population growth and what have you. But um, yeah, I think your your contribution there is immeasurable,
1: um, and in in creating that awareness, that's kind of you. But I'm not sure. I I think if I've made people aware, that's been, and a lot of them have been made aware and done more than I have particularly in later days of the Australian Trout Foundation. But I remember years ago, we were at Harvey Parfrey's pub with teenagers and we used to come back into the pub to compare notes of where we'd been and what we'd done. And I had a friend called Graeme Leith and he put a poster together and it was one of those old convict posters, Wanted, and he had this, Wanted for Piscatorial Mayhem. BG, Brian Gordon, the bloody butcher of Kyandra. And there he was with a photograph, Tommy Hawking the heads of fish and packing them in an esky to bring them back to Melbourne. And it was the first time any of us had thought about conserving our fisheries, limiting our catch. Uh, In those days the bag limits were huge. You know, there was 12 fish at you can be, there was tall fish at Botsford, which you mentioned earlier in the Highlands of Tasmania. All those are now back down to one and two fish, which is where it should be. As you know, I still like killing a fish and putting in a smoker. I take great pride. Well that's just the search for the so Great
0: Lake Limpet though, you know, like there's a
1: reason for killing them <laughs> No, 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 no. <laughs> no, but I, I I, I think if you're going to kill something, you should treasure it. And something that dismays me over the years is to see fish drying in the sun or being left to die on the bank of a river uh, rather than being tapped on the head. I I, I I still have a very passionate view about if you're going to kill something, you should treasure it. And you obviously have a, a view on sustainable harvest as well. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I at one stage I... Um, I headed up the Victorian chapter of Trout Unlimited, which didn't last. It turned into the Australian Trout Foundation, which is the right way to go. But we did import from uh, America all trout, trout Unlimited's magazine and that was the first time that my brain went into the three H's of trout management, being habitat management being the most important and number one, harvest management uh, and, uh, and hatchery management being far and away the least important because I don't like the idea of broodfish being born in a hatchery and then thrown out to stock waters. I, I think much more important is to to discover a way of perhaps stripping eggs and then taking wild fish eggs and hatching them in, say, hatching boxes, which were common or became popular. And so I think the three H's of trout management are still habitat management – Ninety percent important. Yeah. It, it you have to look after the habitat, and and I've seen the destruction of rivers and lakes in Australia that disappoint me immensely, and 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 for no reason, you know, particularly forestry and water, water management, in modern day farming practices have robbed a lot of water out of our waters, which has always been a thing and
0: remains to be a thing, and I think there's as much as a, a step. I guess steps backwards in some cases, there's also a lot of positive steps forward. Oh, yeah, no,
1: we're much better down the track than what we were. And that habitat management really is, I guess, not in
0: vogue, but it's something that we're all recognising now that if the habitat can't sustain a certain population of fish, then, you know, it it won't. But, uh, and stocking isn't going to fix that. No. Nature has a way of reaching an equilibrium.
1: When you think mum and dad trout have. 500 to 1,000 eggs Mm. only to replace the two fish. Mm. There is natural mortality that's 99.9% anyway, you know, like if the hen fish lays 1,000 eggs in a a red in a river to really only replace two fish, um, when things come good and the habitat is right well, then you're going to have an, op- an overpopulation of fish very
0: quickly. And we've seen that with after drought and bushfires. Absolutely. It's incredible how quickly it recovers. Oh, Within that. a couple of years, you've got an incredible fishery again, and it's because the
1: habitat has, has gotten so good. And I think improved. it's important we know and understand that stocking isn't necessarily the A to Z. Mm. On the other side of that, there are waters that need to be stocked that don't have natural recruitment, and uh, there are lots of waters in Australia that... We need a hatchery to stock them, and uh, and I always like to think the best fish from a hatchery is a wild caught egg or a wild stripped egg rather than a brood fish in a hatchery. Um, But coming from a fish that's adapted outside a controlled environment, absolutely, and and uh, you know, so I'm I'm quite strong on that. But but on the other side of it, there are waters where. The rainbow trout is an amazingly adapt back into the wild fish. You know, it, it can be bred in a an hatchery and it's amazing how you can put it out into a water where it rapidly becomes acclimatised to and yeah. and becomes a good trout fishery. You know, so there are artificial waters that become good trout fisheries and particularly farmers' dams and things that don't have natural recruitment mm. but provide a really good trout fishery. Do you think
0: that the millions of dollars that are spent on stocking every year, if that were, were spent on habitat and improving habitat, do you think that would have a more positive impact or...? Yes, I do.
1: No, you know, but
0: it doesn't win votes, well, though,
1: does it? No, and also we've got competing requirements for water. We've got competing requirements. You know, when I look at those some of those streams in Tasmania that David Scoles wrote about in the 1950s and 60s, uh, magic trout streams. But, you know, the modern-day irrigation has changed that. Uh, grazing practices moving away uh, to where cattle and sheep now graze to the edge of a river where they probably should be fenced off. And that's all starting to happen. Mm. And And uh, I think... Whilst we've got competing interests, we also have um, much greater recognition of the commercial value of recreational fishing today and of general recreation. You know, I think recreation is important mm. for all of us medicinally. You know, like I think it's important we take time away from our busy lives and there is no better form of recreation in my selfish, one-eyed <laughs> polarized view of fly fishing with a trout rod, uh, <laughs> fly fishing, <laughs> fly fishing with a fly, trout fishing with a fly rod, Absolutely. get it out right in the Yeah, uh, we yeah.
0: totally agree there, it's, uh, it's good for the soul. But, um, you know, uh, what about today, Jim, like, uh, uh, you know, family-wise, you, you've never been married, uh, you've got your sister still around obviously, but who else in your life, uh, you know, I guess – you have know, kind of created a family, haven't you? Like you've got oh yeah, around
1: fly fishing, I have. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've got a little coterie of mates. You do. I, I nearly, nearly got married. They when follow I was you like
0: flies, don't
1: they? You know. No, they don't. Look, uh, I do know my shack has a, a, a sort of a. a a coterie of fly fishers that turn up every morning for a cup of coffee. I'm Once sure there, a-
0: there would be literally thousands of people listening to this podcast because we get thousands of people listening but um, <laughs> that have come and gone through Jim Allen's shack down there in Tasmania. It is a revolving door there and uh, the common theme is Jim uh, pouring coffee for everyone, talking fishing, advising them on where they should go day by day for their their fishing with the big map on the wall and um, you know, I think what you've created down there is is as you say a coterie and a place where people belong no matter where they're from and i love it <laughs> no, <laughs> I know it's one of the great things about about myena
1: in general is is what you've created there i wrote a uh, a, a small obituary for a, a very great fly fishing guide called bill beck just who died this year january the first recently
0: <laughs> published on flystream.com if you guys
1: want to read the plug in (laughs) however as i wrote there fishing's not just about fishing it's about the people the characters uh it's so much more than just it 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 is a, a life pursuit and uh and and yeah my friends are more about fishing than anywhere else and uh and i've enjoyed my time doing it it's been good fun and i you know like you laugh when you say you walk into my shack and there's 10 or 15 people having a cup of coffee in the morning. Once upon a time, that didn't happen. I was out of bed at 6 in the morning doing a dawn patrol. You know, we used to go down to Lake Sorrel, leave the shack at 3am to get down to Sorrel by daybreak. Fish, and in those days I could hear, like I'm as deaf as opposed to today, but you could hear the fish sipping before you could see them in the fog, and then they'd sip into view. There is a photo of Lake Sorrel and its fishery in my shack that shows 12 trout. Not one of them's under three and a half pounds. There's not one over five either, but they were all of a size, rainbows and browns. And I look back, that fishery is a tragedy. It's not available today, and I'm not going to dwell on the negatives, but we had some magic times in the 1980s that...
0: And there are still some great dawn fisheries and so the dawn fishing is still... Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, Yeah, no, look, um, those guys that go out onto the Great Lake at dawn still get double-figured captures of fish, you know, like so, even this year. But you won't uh, find Jim Allen there. He's uh, No, no, my days are getting out of bed. He's in bit gym bit. jams. <laughs> yeah, correct. I, I don't get out of it. Uh, as you get older, the passion's not quite. Although I'm still just as passionate about the trout fishery. But, yeah, my personal fishing... Is a bit sort of more in the afternoon now than it was all day. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I just, I've sort of touched on it there before, but you've
0: mentored a lot of, of I, I guess, when, you know, people that aren't kids anymore, they might be in their 40s or 50s even by now. I'm thinking, you know, Tim Wallace, Mark Penny, Nick Cush, Clinton Lesko, those kind of guys, you know, like you've, you've made a bit of an impression on a lot of young people over the years, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I suppose so. And they keep I, in touch with you. Yeah, you know? well, that's the best part. Yeah. And of course, so know, I as I
0: say, you've adopted a family, really. Yeah, that yeah, and like. I
1: call them all my boys. But you know, in actual fact, you're quite right. Some of them are in heading towards fifty; they're on the wrong side <laughs> of forty for sure. But they started off as little teenagers, and I've got some photos there of some of them when they there's there's photos of some of them when they were very young, mm. early fishing days. But that, man, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's good.
0: But um, what about today, mate? Like with your, your fishing, you know, like uh, down there in Tassie, you're obviously uh, maybe a bit more confined to the boat. That'd be oh, yeah, well, like, hey,
1: the balance is gone. When you hit 78, Andrew, and it's going to come to you, you, you won't be able to wander around those rivers with boulders in and, you know. I look back, it was only 10 or 15 years ago, I was still fishing for Steelhead in British Columbia, wading rivers that I wouldn't even consider wading today. Um, yeah, old age comes so, and the thing is you've got to surrender a little bit of your fishing. So my fishing is more out of a boat and it has been for 10 years but I, I think guess.
0: think it's worth commenting on the fact that you've adapted your fishing in a way where you still go out and catch a lot of fish every day um, but it just in a different way. Indicated nymphing, yeah, I know no, you, you... I don't
1: think you could uh, catch a lot of fish every day. Some days are diamonds, some days are stone. Well, However... That, that,
0: that old th- adage of 10% of the fishermen catching 90% of the fish I think still holds true and I'd definitely put Jim in that top 10% still today. But oh, you're, uh, being,
1: you're being a bit kind, I think, old boy. Yeah. However, I still fish with the same passion, though for a much shorter time as I did many years ago. And, and I have to say I thoroughly enjoy... You young blokes, when you wander into my shack and you've got out of your bed at half past four in the morning you've gone and found some tales at Little Pine or down at Shannon Lagoon or in one of those smaller lakes or you've been out in the boat on the midges and you come back to the shack at ten o'clock to have a cup of coffee with me, I thoroughly enjoy listening to your stories probably even more. As you get older, I think the memories become a bit more important and the sharing of those memories is more important than the actual fishing however when those fish sip and i can still see a tracking fish and the heart still goes (laughs) there's a heartbeat in there for sure absolutely um but yeah the
0: the techniques you know you've obviously seen them change a lot over the years and i guess in more recent times you know not so much Euro own because you're not fishing rivers as much but uh lakes pulling wet flies. you know obviously that was something that that it probably oh, wasn't
1: popular back in the day, I guess. I it? know, we always flogged wets, but I think guys like Tom Jarman.
0: Tom Jarman's so hot right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you, you, laugh, you laugh when you say that, but but Tom's taking wet fly fishing. He's or, incredible, yeah. To another level, and mm. he's, he's made a, a science of it. And, of course, today the tackle's so much greater, you know, We had a sinking line, but we didn't have 15 sinking lines and we didn't have the structure of the lines where some sink in the middle of the line and some float at the end or some sink at the end and float a bit more in the middle. Yeah, the fly line technology is so great today. Mm. You can do so much more. I love my sight fishing and whether it's a fish rising or whether it's Polaroid is still my number one. So I don't flog a wet and in this day and age those young blokes call it pulling flies and that's what they're doing and they they make it an art form which i don't know much about and I, I you
0: know I, i've fished a bit with jim and I, I can tell you that he likes to see someone on his boat pulling a wet fly while he's got his nymphs under the indicator because he still keeps a very open mind and i can guarantee you that when the wet fly is working jim's very quick to switch out the, the sinking line,
1: yeah, except I don't have the range of sinking lines that you might have. Well, you intermediate,
0: life. that's 90% of it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah but I, there's another level which you can go to with wet fly fishing, which I've not of got, of course, to. there is. And I think yeah. you could argue that about most fly
0: fishing techniques, there's, yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, Jim, just before we totally sign off, I just one last question if you only had one day fishing left in your life. Where would it be? I hate that question. The weather's good. Um, The fish are obliging.
1: uh, Yeah, there's some waters that you have affection for Mm. and that affection comes about by fishing frequently and knowing them intimately. If you'd asked that question when I was in my 30s or 40s, it would have been the Goulburn River, undoubtedly. It was the magic trout stream for me because we went there every weekend as kids and fished it and intimately knew every stretch water and we knew it in different weathers, you know, we knew it in bushfires and ant hatches, we knew it in northerlies and grasshoppers and we knew it in caddis hatches and and so there was an intimacy that's never been beaten for me in the knowledge of the Goulburn River between Thornton. And Alexandra. Fantastic. Nowadays you ask the question of a seventy-eight-year-old, I guess it's shark fishing on the Great Lake. A because I've been part of its development. I've seen this the house in years of it or the house in days on it. Um, and so there's something about the visuality of the sight fishing. We call it shark fishing because they're little brown sharks, but they're sometimes grey when they're rainbows. And so there's an affection there. But when I look back, some of those western lakes, the Botsford particularly, like at Botsford, I think you mentioned earlier tonight, there was the fisheries put some tagged fish in Botsford and I think they put 50 tags in and my shack, not just me, but my shack, or me and my victims, um, caught over half those fish and they're in my diary now. They're all uh, silver little tags put in those fish. And But I, there's an affinity in Botsford. Like I knew every inch of it. I knew where the, the the sand was soft. I knew where the isopods were more likely to be. As autumn came, I knew a, a range of rocks that you'd walk out and find the fish sitting down between the rocks. In, and if it, the wind got up and the water was muddy... You put a little uh, tadpole pattern, I call it a black woolly worm, tied by a fellow called Peter Forster, but it was really a tadpole fly and you'd sink that and you'd see the shape come up and go over it and you just lift the rod. Well, I asked you for one water and you gave us three, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but it is one of those questions, you know, it, to be fair. It's it It's the intimacy of, of, of knowing a water well makes you feel very favourable towards it. And I think in my very early days that would have been the west branch of the Kiwa, as a youngster the Goulburn River, then Botsford and then more latterly the Great Lake and the shark fishing. So
0: there's many years to come yet Jim and so you may discover another fishery and another special place that really hits home for you so...
1: I'm a lazy bastard. I don't, <laughs> think that, I don't think that's quite right. But, but nevertheless, I like the way you're thinking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Jim, mate, it's been great um, getting you on the airwaves here. We really appreciate your time. I'll, uh, I'll take you out to the pub now and chat you a steak for, for, for sitting down with us. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I hope all our listeners have got something out, that, out of that and, and had a good little snapshot as to who Jim Allen, the man, is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I reckon, Andrew, most of them will have fallen asleep. We've been going too long. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks for listening, guys. We'll, uh, look forward to the next one. Cheers.